Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Uh, we'll have the scripture passage on the screen in front of you for convenience as we read together, but I do encourage you to grab one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you or underneath your pew, or to grab your own copy of God's Word, or really to bring your own Bible to our worship service so you can follow along in God's Word yourselves. It would be helpful to have a Bible open uh, to our passage during the sermon so that you can examine God's Word yourselves. And um, if you don't have a Bible, whether you're, you know, you're an adult or even a child, please feel free to take one of our pew Bibles home with you if you need a Bible, or we do have some soft uh, cover copies on our welcome and resource table just outside the sanctuary if you feel bad about taking one of the, the pew Bibles. Uh, we just want to get a Bible into your hands. If you don't have a Bible, um, please make sure you grab one from our church. Uh, we want you to be able to have access to God's Word. Now, would you all stand with me if you're able and willing to the reading of God's Word? First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Of this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. May God bless the reading of His Word. Please be seated. Last year, the events that unfolded in Ukraine reminded us all that war is a very real thing. Anyone who paid attention to the news in February and March of 2022 could not ignore the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, even though it was thousands of miles away. Today, it continues to be a war that dominates uh, world headlines and affects a host of people in the region. But it's not the only war that is out there. There are many other wars being raged across the globe. There are civil wars in Africa and uh, in places like Syria. There are drug wars in Mexico and Colombia. There are terrorist insurgencies in Africa and in the Middle East. Yet despite all the global conflict, we have been well insulated from the harsh realities of war here in the United States. We might feel a bit irritated when gas prices rise. We might even feel saddened by the stories of refugees and those who have gone through the unbelievable trauma of war. But most of us here do not know war. The closest thing that many people here in Silicon Valley have gotten to war might actually be the game, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare. You know, to many, war is just a game. It's a faraway thing that does not seem to touch our daily lives. We have not been forced to adopt a typical wartime mentality. But that does not mean we aren't at war. As Christians here in America, we may not be in armed conflict with an enemy state or a terrorist group, but we're still at war. And we have a call of duty, but, but it's not a video game of modern warfare. 
It's a, it's a very serious engagement in spiritual warfare. Spiritual war has been the longest-running conflict in world history. In the beginning, God created the world, and it was good. Genesis 1 tells us that. There was no conflict in God's creative plan. But eventually, Satan, who was a blameless angel, fell. And we learn in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that it was his pride that got the best of him. He sought to be God's equal, and that led to his downfall. But Satan did not fall alone. He was joined by other angels. And since that time, they have consistently opposed God and His redemptive purposes together. In the Old Testament, we find Satan tempting God's servant Job. We find him waging war against God's angels in the book of Daniel. In the New Testament, we find him tempting Jesus, and we find his demons possessing people and and threatening the work of Jesus. We find Satan entering into Judas as he prepared to betray the Lord. And the writers of the epistles warn us of how he attacks the church. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The Bible speaks of the war we are in against Satan and his forces because of our relationship with God. As the children of God, we have been adopted into His family, and that means we have gained His greatest enemy. Like it or not, we have been drafted into this war. So Paul famously told believers in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And though by God's grace we may not experience the ravages of physical war, we need to remember that we are in a spiritual war. We have a call of duty. We are in a fight. And from our passage in 1 Timothy, we are reminded that it's our duty as believers to engage in this war of faith. Thus far in Paul's letter to Timothy, he has written about Timothy's responsibility to deal with false teachers in Ephesus. He's reminded Timothy about the glory of the gospel and how that gospel worked so powerfully in Paul's own life to transform him from the foremost of sinners to one of the most famous of apostles. And so now, with the power of the gospel on the forefront of his mind, Paul encouraged Timothy to fight the good fight of faith in the midst of opponents who were threatening it. And there are two main responsibilities in this war that Paul outlines in these verses. Two main responsibilities. The first is simply to remember the war of faith. Remember the war of faith. In verse 18, Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. This charge is the same charge Paul wrote about in verse 3 and in verse 5. It was a charge to keep certain people from teaching different doctrine. It was a charge that was meant to produce love, that the truth of God should always produce in the lives of His people. In in verse 18, Paul is returning to his initial theme in this letter. He wants Timothy to guard the gospel. He wants him to guard the truth, but he's going to provide him now with a few more specifics on how to do that. Notice also that this charge is something that Timothy has been entrusted with. He was meant to keep the truth of the gospel safe. 
There's also the idea of, of needing to, to faithfully transmit the gospel in this word in trust. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul uses the same word. And, and there he writes, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, so Timothy was entrusted with a responsibility to keep the gospel truth safe and to transmit it to the next generation. This past holiday season, my, our family went down to, to Southern California to visit my family, and it is always special for us to be able to go down, especially as my parents get a bit older. Well, this time my dad had several things that he wanted to tell me. As he gets closer and closer to the end of his life, I think he wants to make sure that he passes down some of this important information to his son. So uh, this time he, he took me around our house, and he showed me all the places in the house where he has hidden valuable things. <laughs> Growing up in that house for decades, I never knew these spots existed. Yeah. Behind vents, I shouldn't give too much away, behind <laughs> vents or under certain objects or furniture are a lot of things in my house. Maybe some of you have had a similar experience with your own parents as you've moved into adulthood. But as a son, as he was sharing these things to me, I felt that I had been entrusted with valuable information. So I made sure when I got back home to write some of those spots down so I didn't forget. I think that's the idea behind the word entrust. Right? Like Timothy, we too have been entrusted with the message of the gospel as Christians. We have been given access to the truth of God. And it is valuable information that needs to be guarded and protected. It's information that needs to be faithfully transmitted from generation to generation. And, and Paul uses that generational language and he writes to Timothy and calls him, my child. As apostle, as an apostle commissioned by Jesus himself, Paul has passed down the precious truth of the gospel to Timothy, his dear child in the faith. And now he wants him to guard that precious truth. Because it's valuable, not in, in a physical sense, but it's valuable because it's transformative and life-giving. It's truth that has transformed Paul himself. It's transformed him from a life of anger and persecution and blasphemy to a life of love and humble service. And so Paul goes on to encourage Timothy in this by bringing up the prophecies that had been made about Timothy. Now turn with me for a moment over just a few chapters to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. There Paul writes, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And then he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So at some point in time, Timothy was given a spiritual gift, and this came through a prophecy that occurred when a group of elders laid hands on him. Most likely, the gift was a gift of teaching and preaching, because Paul mentions it right after his reminder to Timothy to read the Scriptures and to exhort others and to teach. Now, later on in 2 Timothy, 
Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul called Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. There was an unforgettable event in Timothy's life in which he was confirmed for ministry by other men. And at that time, it seems as if there were prophecies made about his future gospel work. He would be a preacher and a teacher of the truth of God. This commissioning was a milestone in the life of Timothy. It's like when an elder gets ordained today. We, we don't expect prophecies like those that happened during Timothy's day because that was a time of transition in the early church. But as Paul will teach us in 1 Timothy 3, we look for men who have a desire to serve as an elder, who meet the character qualifications of an elder, and who are confirmed by the church. And this kind of confirmation for a servant of God is an important event that not only recognizes a man for ministry, but it also serves as an encouragement in ministry. And knowing that you have been affirmed by others in the church and gifted to serve the Lord, it's, it's motivating. This isn't just a job that you can decide to leave because your stock options have vested or you don't like your coworkers anymore. Being called to Christian ministry is much more than that. It is a responsibility and a stewardship that one is entrusted with. And Paul reminded Timothy of this. And then he wrote that by them, by these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. Timothy was to recall those prophecies and to recall his divine gifting and the confirmation of others in his life in order that he would be encouraged to keep on going in the spiritual war. And notice that Paul writes it's a good war to be in. Unlike so many wars today, there is no question whether this war should be fought. This is a war of necessity against spiritual forces of evil. It is a war of faith. It is a, a struggle to further the faith. In chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. We need to remember that we are in a war of faith. And even though you might not be in the same position that Timothy was in, as a Christian, you are in the same war. And you are called to duty. And like, like BTS, you can't escape your responsibility. And as a citizen of God's kingdom, as a member of his family, you are all in the Lord's army. You're in a struggle to advance the faith against Satan and his forces in this world. Remember that. Remember the war of faith. But obviously, we're not just to remember this. We're also to participate. And so in verses 19 and 20, Paul discusses how believers should engage in this war. First, we're to remember the war of faith, but our second responsibility is to engage in the war of faith. We're to engage in the war of faith. How do we fight this good fight of faith? Well, we do it first by holding to the faith, by holding to the faith. This means that we have to have a solid grasp on the essentials of our faith. We should be able to explain the gospel clearly with scriptural support. Now, if you don't have that firm foundation, you can develop it. You can learn it. You can go to something like our Fundamentals of the Faith class that's going to start next quarter. All Christians should strive to have a strong theological understanding of the faith. We need to have a solid understanding of the Trinity and the incarnation of Jesus 
and the nature of sin and the need for the atoning work of Christ and the fact that justification is by faith alone and the inerrancy of Scripture. These are some of the fundamental doctrines that we need to hold on to in order to be able to know the enemy and to fight the right kinds of battles in this world in order to guard the truth of the gospel. Throughout the history of the church, many key doctrinal battles have been fought. Today, we are in a fight against a skewed gospel that is all about prosperity, and we're in a fight against a moral revolution that wants to reinterpret the Bible as a book of tolerance and acceptance instead of loving truth. We need to have the the solid biblical foundation to recognize those attacks on the truth and to defend the truth from them. And I want to add that the more you learn about the Christian faith, excuse me, and the more you learn about the God that we worship, the more you should love Him. And that will make you want to go to battle for Him. It won't just feel like a duty. Why do so few Americans today want to sign up for the military? There, there are probably a multitude of reasons, but one of them certainly is a lack of love for our country. Instead of appreciating the past, we have a tendency today to question it, to revisit every mistake. Certainly, our nation has a checkered history, which has caused great pain to many people. But there is also something noble about the American experiment that is being increasingly lost today. And when we do not remind ourselves of what is good about our country, there's no desire to fight for it. Like some of you, I grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day at school, and I know it was often a a mindless ritual, but I still remember it today. It reminds me of the good things our, our country stands for, a belief in God, as well as liberty and justice for all. But today, those kinds of reminders are lacking. I was asking my children, do you still say the Pledge of Allegiance? They said, no, I know it because I say it in Awana, but we don't say it at school anymore. Those kinds of reminders are lacking. And that makes sacrificing and standing up for our country hard to do. In order to fight the spiritual war, we need to remind ourselves of the goodness of our faith. And with God, there's no checkered history. His record is one of perfect wisdom and and loving redemption and extravagant mercy and appropriate justice. And that is one of the reasons why we need to continue to be a Bible-teaching church. We need to make sure that we understand deeply and richly the faith that we believe so that we will hold fast to it and want to go to war for it. We don't want to adopt the mindset of just seeking out curiosities about God and the Scriptures for the sake of intellectual stimulation. But we do want to go to the Scriptures to learn about God Himself and how He calls us to live and to be one again to the wonders of who He is. When you go to watch a movie like Top Gun Maverick, you don't go because you think the dialogue is going to be the best. You don't go to watch it trying to find all the plot holes or the missing pieces. Why do you go? You go because you want to see action, you want to see beautiful people, you want to see romance, you want to see good prevailing over evil. And, and when you walk out of that movie or you finish watching it, it is hard not to say, sign me up for the military. 
Yeah, I want to be the next rooster. But it's different if you're watching a TED Talk on YouTube. There you're usually analyzing the argument. You're prepared to dissect the improper logic. You're trying to maybe learn, usually for your own intellectual knowledge base. You might use the information you receive, but you might not. Many of us approach God's Word like a TED Talk. We want to analyze and dissect and even appreciate it. It doesn't always move us to do anything. Instead, our our church needs more of a top-gun approach. We need to approach the Scriptures ready to be wowed, ready to be awed, ready to see the, the goodness of God shining brightly against the badness of Satan in this evil world so that when we read the Scriptures, it causes us to say, sign me up for the fight. If we're going to fight in this battle, we must hold to the faith. At a basic level, this is understanding the basics of the faith. That's one of the reasons we recite creeds on Sunday evenings. They're, they're a lot like our pledges of allegiance. They teach us and remind us in succinct form of what we believe and what we stand for. But we also need to proactively approach the Scriptures, not only with a mind ready to analyze, but with a heart ready to leap at the wonders of God so that we will be eager to join this fight. How do we engage in the war of faith? Well, first, by holding to the faith. But we must also live out the faith. We engage in the war of faith by holding to the faith but also we engage by living out the faith, by living out the faith. In verse 19, Paul mentions the faith, but he also mentions the necessity of a good conscience. The conscience is the organ of our decision-making. God has given us something inside of us that reacts to certain types of behavior. When we are living rightly, we feel at peace in our conscience, but when we're disobedient, we feel guilt and shame. A good conscience is the result of a life of purity. It's developed from obeying God's commands. It's a conscience that has been informed by the truth of the gospel. And it helps to move our faith from right thinking to right living. So we must not only hold to the faith, but we're to live it out. That's what will result in a good conscience before the Lord. And to have a sensitive conscience is a wonderful blessing from God. Because the alternative is a seared conscience, which has no problem with continual disobedience. But if we live that way, if we continue to ignore our conscience and disobey God's Word, that will destroy our spiritual lives. If your conscience, if if that inner voice that God has given you is telling you something, listen to it. Don't go against it. Your conscience might be speaking to you regarding a gray area that other believers feel is okay. Listen to your conscience. Or it might be speaking to you about a clear area of sin, an issue of integrity or honesty or temptation to lust or cheat or or steal or any one of the things that Pastor Ryan prayed about earlier in our prayer of confession. Pay attention to your conscience. And I want any of you children here to listen listen up to this part. God has given you an inner voice. If you hear that voice in your head telling you, you shouldn't do that. Oh, I don't know if I should do that or not. And if you hear that thought in your head, 
listen to it. God has given you that little voice as a gift to help you do what is right. Now, inevitably, we will all make mistakes. We'll fail to heed our conscience. We'll neglect its warnings about materialism and giving in to our anger and towing the line regarding entertainment. And we'll fall into sin. And even if others don't know, our conscience will plague us. But we can still clear our consciences by making obedience our next step. Thomas Cramer was a 16th century archbishop of Canterbury, and he famously watched two other Christian martyrs be burned at the stake for their faith, and, and it scared him. And after being imprisoned for a couple years and in much pressure, he recanted his own faith. But the Catholic Queen Mary still wanted him executed. His recantation didn't, didn't actually work, didn't save him. But right before his execution, he recanted his recantation. Why? Well, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, he said this, And now I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience, more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life. And that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the trust which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be. And forasmuch as my hand hath offendeth, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first punished, for when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. Cramer was tormented internally by his decision to sign away his faith, but eventually he listened to his conscience. And when he burned at the stake for his faith, he made sure the hand that signed that initial recantation was burned first. The lesson from Cramer's life is that even if you have violated your conscience, you can still make it right again. That's what a faithful soldier of Christ does. Our king is patient with us as we join him in this fight. None of us is going to be the perfect warrior. But when we fail, we can still listen to our troubled conscience, bathe ourselves again in the blood of our king and prepare to fight the good fight again. As believers, we are to engage in the war of faith by holding to the faith and by living out our faith with a good conscience. Lastly, Paul, Paul calls upon us to protect the faith. Protect the faith. We are to engage in the war of faith by protecting the faith. And this is specifically, excuse me, to be done through church discipline. At the end of verse 19 and in verse 20, Paul points out two individuals that needed to be disciplined by the church. These two individuals had led people away from the truth of the gospel. And since they had not changed their ways, Paul excommunicated them in order to protect the Christian faith. We are to protect the faith through church discipline. But we must understand what church discipline entails. Well, first of all, I want you to notice in these verses that Formal church discipline is for those whose disobedience has publicly damaged the faith. Church discipline is for those whose disobedience has publicly damaged the faith. 
All of us sin as Christians. None of us, even the, the most respected pastors, is free from sin. And all sin needs to be revealed and dealt with either personally or through the rebuke and encouragement of others in our lives. But there is some sin that rises to the category of sin that needs to be dealt with in a more public and formal manner. And this is the kind of sin that Timothy was facing in Ephesus. Paul writes that some there had rejected a good conscience. They were willfully disobedient to God's requirements, and and this seemed to have led them to teach what is false. And John Calvin said that a, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. And that's true. Theological error is often rooted in moral failure. The prosperity gospel is rooted in a love for this world and for the things of this world. The rise of theologically liberal and tolerant churches is rooted in an unwillingness to give up certain sinful lifestyles. When we live a life of disobedience, we are tempted to twist and mold and shape God's Word to fit our lives instead of bringing our lives under submission to God's Word. And this is apparently what these two men had done. They had made shipwreck of the faith. Now, note that the ESV here says that they shipwrecked their faith, but the Greek should probably be translated the faith, and that's indicated in the the footnote in the ESV. That means these two men had not simply ruined their own faith, they had also damaged the Christian faith. By their testimony and their false teaching, they had brought confusion to the message of Christianity. The names of these two men were Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, Hymenaeus is probably the same guy that Paul writes about in 2 Timothy 2.17. He wrote there that among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. So by speculating about the resurrection, Hymenaeus was leading people astray and perhaps even layering on on top of that falsehood certain rules and laws for living in line with that teaching to suit his own preferences. As for Alexander, that name is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. Uh, Paul does write about a a coppersmith who did him great harm in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, but it's hard to be sure that it was the same Alexander. In any case, these two men had replaced the faith with speculation. And instead of producing love through their teaching, they had caused dissension, damaging the faith in the process. So Paul singled them out because their sin wasn't a private thing. It wasn't something that they could just work out on their own. It was a very public thing. And it it wasn't just causing damage to their own faith. It was ruining the reputation of the faith. And so while all of us should be involved in the process of growing in holiness and dealing with sin and helping one another grow, formal church discipline is for those whose disobedience has publicly damaged the faith. Next, we see that church discipline is meant to be conducted in the context of the church. Church discipline is for those whose disobedience has publicly damaged the faith, and it is meant to be conducted in the context of the church. In verse 20, Paul writes that he has handed these two men over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, because these two men had not turned from their sin, because they had not repented from that public sin, Paul delivered them over to the current domain of Satan, which is the world. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This means that Paul excommunicated these two men from the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, he did something similar to a man involved in gross sexual sin. And in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 5, he called upon the church to purge the evil person from among you. Purge him. Excommunicate him. Excommunication is removing a person from the protection of the church in this world. Having other Christians in our lives provides a sanctifying influence. But removing someone from that environment exposes him or her to the wiles of Satan on their own. And so this action of church discipline is something meant for the church to perform. Now, even though Paul mentions it was him who handed these men over to Satan since he had spiritual authority and special authority as an apostle, who's he writing to? He's writing to Timothy. He's writing to the church in Ephesus to compel them to carry out this decision. And this is really the last step in the process of church discipline that Jesus taught in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. It only comes after multiple warnings. But this is a necessary, necessary step for those who continue to persist in sin, which publicly damages the faith. So first, church discipline is for those whose disobedience has caused public harm to the faith. Second, it's meant to be conducted in the church. And, and third, it's meant to be a loving form of correction. Church discipline is meant to be a loving form of correction. And church discipline can seem harsh to, to hand someone over to Satan sounds extreme. It sounds unloving to many of us today. But there is a loving purpose behind this. The formal discipline in the church is not something that any apostle, any pastor, or elder wants to do. But it is a necessary act because all other steps have proved futile. And in love, the person disciplined is sent out into the world in order to hopefully see the folly of their ways in return. Paul writes at the end of verse 20 that this handing over of Hymenaeus and Alexander was so that they may learn not to blaspheme. And the word learn there has the idea of training behind it. It has the idea of training children. You know, when I discipline my children, I don't want to punish them. I want to help them. I, I want to help them learn how they should live. And so the purpose of discipline is not to punish, it's to correct. Paul writes about it this way to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. He writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Discipline is to be done in that same spirit, in a spirit of patience and, and gentleness, wanting to correct with the goal of repentance in mind. When professed Christians disrespect God by distorting the gospel through their lives, 
or, or they're teaching in a public way and they refuse to repent, they, they commit blasphemy. They lie about what it means to be, a, come a Christ, to be a Christian and to follow God. And the last means that the church has at its disposal is to excommunicate them with the hope that they will turn back and be corrected. In order to properly engage in the war that we're in with Satan, we have to protect ourselves from those within who are hindering the cause. A war is never pleasant, but when it's a good war, it needs to be fought. And as Christians, we have been drafted into a good fight for the faith. And those who will win are not those who just sit idly by and assume victory. Paul reminds us through his words to Timothy to get into this fight. Hold to the faith. Know, know the fundamentals of the faith. And go to God's Word with, with that top gun mentality to get excited about advancing the cause of Christ. Live out the faith. Make sure you've got a good conscience and protect the faith. Be on guard against those in the church who cause the disrepute to the gospel and be willing to lovingly discipline them. Well, these are some of the ways that we must engage in this war that we are all in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes we need these reminders because we can get comfortable in our faith. We need to be reminded that, that we're actually in a war. The forces of evil with Satan at the head are trying to thwart your redemptive purposes in this world. And so we pray that as your people, as your family, as your church, as soldiers of the gospel, you would help us to fight the good fight. Oh, help us to hold to the faith, to get excited about the faith, and so that we might engage in this war. Help us to, to live lives listening to our conscience, consciences that reflect this faith and help us to protect the faith, even if it means a lovingly disciplining others. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.